you can join me in the reading of God's Word. The scripture passage today comes from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 through 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, You went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners. And it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air. And I heard a voice saying to me, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, By no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, What God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were, sent to me from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them, just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. Who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Chi. Well, if you have been with us the past few weeks, you might be wondering, what happened to the Sermon on the Mount? Aren't we in the middle of a series, right in the middle of chapter 6, looking at the Sermon on the Mount? And the answer is yes, we are in that series. But last week, as we took a look at the passage where Jesus calls us to love our enemies, where we found that Jesus was saying there is not two categories in this world. There's just one category of neighbor, not enemies and neighbor. That the way that we divide the world into us versus them, the way that we label people, the way that we categorize people is a violation of his call for us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And as we were looking at that and I was interacting with many of you afterward and I was letting that message kind of percolate and sink into my own soul, I felt like it struck a chord with me. It seemed like it struck a chord with many of you, and so I felt like we need a little bit more time there. We need a little bit more time with this radical call of Jesus to love even our enemies. 
And so it brought to mind this passage for me that I've um, looked at previously a number of years ago from Acts 10 and 11. And it's the story, as we just read, of Peter and a man called Cornelius. And it's a story of how a former enemy not only became a neighbor, but how a former enemy became a brother, became family. And so I thought it was a really good follow-up to what we talked about last week. So what we're going to do, we read, the, we read the story from Acts chapter 11. And what we're going to do is we're actually going to walk through the story again. This was Peter repeating or recounting the story because everybody was wondering. He went back home to Jerusalem and they said, what happened over there in Caesarea? And he told them this story that we just heard she read. I want to walk back and read the story as it happens, as told in Acts chapter 10. So if you have a Bible, or if there's one nearby, you can follow along as we do this. But one of the biggest issues in early Christianity, if you read the New Testament letters that's addressed over and over again, was this. How can people who were former enemies, who were hostile to each other, how can they now live as brothers and sisters and friends and family? The Gospel of Luke, the book of Acts that we just read from, this is a major theme. The book of Romans, the book of Galatians, the letter to the Corinthians, the first letter, the letter to the Ephesians, these are all major themes in all of these letters. How can this possibly be? How can we live together? At the same time, one of the biggest draws of early Christianity was how former enemies learned to live as brothers and sisters and friends and family. And that should be the same today. In a place like Orange County, where we have people from all over the world, from every single background you could possibly imagine, living in our county as our neighbors, diverse in every way, ethnically, politically, economically, but also in many ways still, still divisive, uh, still divided. The church is meant to be a place where there are no outsiders. How is this possible? What does this look like? Well, there's one, one quote I wanted to share uh, from a commentator who is writing about this theme throughout the book of Acts. And here's what he says. He says, The task of putting to death the hostility between minority Greek Jews, majority Hebrew Jews, Samaritan outcasts, and heathen Gentiles was a central concern for the early church. It was not a sideshow to the drama of God's work. The story of how the gospel reconciled diverse people together into one faith and one church takes center stage in Acts. And so he's saying, in one sense, this is what the book of Acts is all about. How is it possible that this community was created? And the passage we'll look at today is one of the most important stories on this theme in Acts and in the whole Bible. In fact, this story, the story of Cornelius and Peter, is so important in the book of Acts, it's repeated three times. We read it in Acts 11, we're going to look at it in Acts 10, and then in Acts 15, it's shortened, but it's told all over again, three different times in the same book. Now, 
within one book of the Bible, stories rarely get repeated. And if they do get repeated, maybe they get repeated twice, but this story is repeated three times. And maybe you've had the experience of having somebody tell you a story that you've already heard them tell you, and you're thinking, should I say something? They already told me this story, like yesterday. Okay, fine, just one more time. But then if it happens a third time, I don't know how patient you are to listen again to the story being told to you for the third time. That's when I'm like, oh, yeah, 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 you told me that. That was cool. That was great. Because we don't want to listen to the same story three times. But God says about this story, Peter and Cornelius, you should know this story. This is a really important story for what it means to be a Christian and what it means to be the church. I think one of, one of the major barriers uh, for those who are, who are seeking, who are exploring, who still have questions about what it means to be a Christian, and maybe some of you are here with us this morning and you are still cautious. You still have some, some questions about Jesus. One of the, the biggest questions that I've encountered when I've had conversations with people is this. Does a conversion to Jesus also mean that I am converting to a certain set of middle-class conservative values? Am I converting to a certain culture when I convert to Jesus? And that's one of the main questions that we'll tackle this morning because the answer is no. Conversion to Jesus does not also entail the conversion to a certain culture, uh, to a certain way of doing life that is specific to a certain type of person. So this is how we'll proceed. We'll look at Cornelius, we'll look at Peter, and then we'll talk about some implications. So first, Cornelius. He was the outsider. I'm going to read from Acts 10, 1 through 8. So we're hearing the story again. At Caesarea, there was a man named Cornelius, a centurion of what was known as the Italian cohort. He was a devout man who feared God and with all his household gave alms generously to the people and prayed continually to God. About the ninth hour of the day, he saw clearly in a vision an angel of God come in and say to him, Cornelius. And he stared at him in terror and said, What is it, Lord? And he said to him, Your prayers and your alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Now send men to Joppa and bring one Simon, who is called Peter. He is lodging with one Simon, a tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had departed, he called two of his servants. He sent a devout soldier from among those who attended him. And having related everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. So let's get a sense of the setting here. We're in Caesarea, which is in Judea, still within um, the province of Judea, but it was a very Greco-Roman city. It was a port city that functioned as the provincial capital under the Roman control of the region of Judea. And up to this point in the book of Acts, Caesarea is the farthest city mentioned from Jerusalem. So here again we see, despite the reluctance, despite the fears of the early church, the message about Jesus, it keeps going outward. It all started in one city in Jerusalem. It keeps being pushed outward to Samaria and throughout the region of Judea. We see God is not allowing the church to become inward, an insider's club, but he's pushing his people outward all the way up into Caesarea. What about Cornelius? Who is he? 
He's called a centurion. That was a commander, a Roman commander, a captain over 100 soldiers. And so remember the context for a faithful Jewish person at the time. This was an enemy, and this was a commander of the enemies, a symbol and a reminder that Israel and Jerusalem were subjugated and were not free. But Cornelius is called devout. He's called the God-fearer. What is that? Well, that's a term for somebody who is not Jewish, but wanted to follow the ethical teaching of Judaism and worship the God of Judaism. They were not considered full converts because they held back from going all in when it came to becoming fully Jewish, circumcision, dietary laws, and those kinds of things. They were dissatisfied with their own religious options in the Greco-Roman world, and they were attracted to the God of the Bible. But they stopped short of fully becoming culturally Jewish. So even though Cornelius gave to the synagogue, even though he prayed regularly, he was still considered unclean. He could eat with a faithful Jew. He could not eat with a faithful Jewish person. He was not welcome into a Jewish home. He was not welcome into the temple. And so Cornelius was an outsider. What does it feel like to be an outsider? Well, I remember one, one story in my own life where I, I felt kind of like an outsider. Was, I, was, I got a flyer in the mail. This was when I first started working in a church. The first church I ever worked in, it was over here in, in Fullerton. It was a big church, Evangelical Free Church of Fullerton. So it was known as like a mega church. I got a flyer for a very small conference, and it was outside of, of the denomination uh, that I was serving in at the time. It was really outside of our doctrinal circles, but we were all like, hey, let's go learn, uh, me and three of my friends. This, this conference sounds really cool. So we go to this conference, and it was a small conference, probably about 20 people, and we're four of them, and everyone's asking us, well, hey, guys, you know, who are you? How did you get here? Where are you coming from? And we said, we're coming from this church, Evangelical Free Church Fullerton. Like, oh, the mega church. Yeah, why are you guys here? And we had this conversation like four, five, six times. Like, what are you, why are you here? Oh, really? The megachurch? Why are you here? And after having that conversation repeatedly, we started to wonder, yeah, why are we here? We didn't feel welcome. We didn't feel like we were a part of the group, and we felt like we didn't belong, like we were outsiders. And maybe you felt like that. Maybe you've been told that, either implicitly or explicitly. You know what? You're not one of us. And few things can hurt more than that, especially when it's because of your race or your gender or your culture. You find yourself on the outside looking in. But this was how Cornelius found himself. In his spiritual seeking, despite his interest and his good intentions, what he encountered, what he experienced were barriers. And what God is doing here in this story is showing Peter, he's showing us, that because of Jesus, the barriers have come down. For my Christian friends, notice what God did not tell Cornelius. He didn't say, Cornelius, there's a message you need to hear. Now, I want you to go to Jerusalem. I want you to go and find Peter and ask him to tell you that message. I want you to get circumcised. I want you to eat the food that Peter is comfortable eating. 
Instead, he said, I'm going to send Peter to you. Go and get him, and he's coming to you. He's going to meet you on your turf where you're comfortable, and he's going to eat the food that you eat. God's plan was for Peter, the insider, to come out to him. And as we reflect on that as the church, for my Christian friends, God's call to us in mission for his people is not, if you build it, they will come. The classic field of dreams line. Just do your thing and wait for people to come to you. His call is for us to move out. His promise to us is when we move out, we'll find he's already at work on the outside. So what barriers do we put up and ask people to cross before we'll come to them? Are we the type of person, are we the type of church that even if if someone is, is interested, even if someone is seeking, even if someone wants to know more about Jesus, that there are barriers that we've put up that make it really hard for them to cross? These are the kinds of questions we need to wrestle with. Do we speak in code language that only we can understand? By the way that we act and think and speak, do we implicitly put up barriers that make it harder for people to encounter the message of the gospel? That's Cornelius. He was the outsider. Now let's look at Peter and continuing on in the story. The next day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat, but while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. He saw the heavens opened and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him saying, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is uncommon or unclean. And the voice came to him a second time. What God has made clean... Do not call common. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once into heaven. Skipping forward after Peter's arrival, verse 28. Peter said to them, You yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone of another nation. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without objection. I asked then why you sent for me. So Jesus told his followers that they would be his witnesses to the ends of the earth, Acts 1.8. But for the most part, as we read the story of Acts, they were just waiting. They were just hanging tight. They were waiting for the earth to come to them. But this is how God opened the door wide open. And how he pushed Peter and following Peter, the rest of the church, out the door and outward. As significant as Cornelius' conversion was in this story, I think we're meant to see that Peter's conversion was even more significant. Because he thought of himself as the insider. There are three ways that God pushed Peter out of his comfort zone. Three ways that he pushes us, I think, as well, out of our comfort zones. First, through prayer. It is extremely significant that both Peter and Cornelius are brought together first through prayer. 
So this story, first of all, is not a strategy for diversity. It's not a strategy for multiculturalism in and of itself or for its own sake. This is about God's heart. This is about God's mission. This is about God's plan and purpose to create this new community, this new humanity in Jesus, a community where enemies are reconciled, where divisions are done away with by the power of the gospel. It's through prayer that our hearts are aligned with God's heart for those people in our lives that we might think of as outsiders, outside the reach of God's grace. Through prayer, our eyes are open to barriers that we have, ways that we exclude people. Through prayer, our hearts are opened up for acts of outward mission that if left to ourselves, we would never do on our own. But in prayer, God empowers us to take that step out the door through prayer. Second, I'm going to say through parties, partly because I want all these to begin with P, but also there's a point to that. This passage is all about food. It's all about eating. Verse 10, we see Peter's hungry. Okay, why is that significant? Then a sheet of animals comes down in a vision. Kill and eat. Wow, what is that all about? Go kill and eat an alligator, reptiles. What is that? In verse uh, 3 of chapter 11, everybody's upset when Peter comes back home because they're saying, why did you eat with these people? How could you do that? Well, to eat with Cornelius, in a sense, to to party with him, to show hospitality, to be welcomed into his home, we see that that was how the concept, the idea that grace is for all, that Jesus and the welcome into his kingdom is an open invitation to all, that's how that theory became real in practice, through the party and through the food. To help us relate to this, the power of food, maybe we can all think back, and some of you are in middle school now. Some of you, middle school was a long time ago. But I don't know what your experience was like when you went to middle school. For me, I went to a small private school to a larger middle school, and all of a sudden, when it came to lunch, I was like, where do I sit? Who do I sit with? I didn't know anyone in my middle school. And I remember those feelings of just feeling like, I guess I just sit over here all by myself and eat my lunch. And I remember meeting somebody uh, in my PE class and we were playing some sport and I was like, okay, this guy's kind of my friend. And that one day where I was like, I'm going to sit next to this guy who's kind of my friend and hopefully I don't get like rejected by all of his friends. He's like a group of 30 or 40 kids. Because eating in the middle school lunchroom means Much more than just there's this guy next to me eating next to me, it means acceptance. It means you're a part of the group. It means you're one of us. And that's what eating meant in the first century, especially to the Jewish person. If you eat with me, I accept you. We're equals. We belong to the same group. One of the biggest problems the religious leaders of the day had with Jesus' ministry was who he ate with was who he accepted, who he partied with. In Luke 7, 34, 
Jesus says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and you say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Later on in Luke 15, they said, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. There's so, there's so much significance to Jesus' meals, but one of the main points of significance to Jesus' meals where they were a model of the kind of community that he was seeking to build with his church. They were a model for us of who we should befriend, who we should welcome into our lives and into our homes through hospitality. One author described it like this, that the people of God in the early church were an embodied question mark. That they were this group of people, a real living, breathing group of people, and people said, what? Who is this? What? How is this community possible? It raised all kinds of questions. So for us, how does this apply? Well, in our gatherings, because of the people we are willing to befriend, the kind of people we're willing to engage in personal conversation, the places we're willing to go and to serve, are we an embodied question mark? People on both sides of the spectrum were amazed by this story. The irreligious people, they said, what is happening here? Who are you eating with? The religious people, it says they were amazed. And so Christian friends, in verse 45 of Acts chapter 10. As it says, they were amazed by what God has done. That even this group of people, even those on the outside, are welcomed and a part of this community. Do people look at us? Do they wonder what we're doing with them, doing that, going there and befriending these kinds of people? That's through parties. Thirdly, through pinpointing prejudice. One thing we might miss if we are not careful about this story is that as God and Peter are interacting, Peter said no to God. Here there's a vision that comes to Peter and all of us would love, God, what do you want me to do? Show me in a vision exactly what your will is for my life. And God does that for Peter and Peter says no. No, thank you. I never have. I never will eat that. God had to repeat that vision three times and explain to Peter That what I call clean and unclean, I define, and only I can make a person truly clean and acceptable to me. Why was it so hard for Peter to get it? I think the answer is that when it comes to deep-seated cultural, racial, and social boundaries, we are all slow to change. Ajith Fernando is a Sri Lankan minister And he said this in his commentary on this passage. He said, living in a land of ethnic strife and struggling with the question of feelings of one's race and the other's race in a time of conflict, I have come to realize that prejudice is often one of the last things that is touched by the process of sanctification. Peter, he had to repent that he was adding to the gospel. He was adding race and culture to what was needed to be fully right and acceptable and welcomed by God. And it was Peter's repentance from his racial and cultural self-righteousness that opened up this door for the gospel to spread to all nations. 
And so the question for us, are we willing to see our cultural biases, even our racial prejudices, and the ways that our own social practices are inconsistent with the gospel? If we are, God can work with that. If we are, God can use that repentance to open up doors. So through prayer, through parties, and through pinpointing even our own prejudices. That's Peter. I want to close by looking at how God's mission, as we see in the story of Peter and Cornelius, is that there would be no outsiders. As you read this story, maybe you have this question. This is the question that I had. Why, when God appeared to Cornelius, here's Cornelius praying and he's seeking God. Why didn't he just say, Cornelius, I hear your prayers. You didn't hear about my son coming, Jesus. I want to tell you all about him. And God could have just preached the gospel to Cornelius himself. Why not? I think the answer is that God has called his people to cross these boundaries, to build these bridges in order that a community might be created that is this embodied question mark for the world. A no-outsiders kind of community. And this community couldn't be created unless Peter, who was the insider, experienced this conversion. He was already a Christian, yes, but the gospel had not yet reached his prejudice. It had not yet reached his biases and the way that he divided the world into an us versus then system, into insiders and outsiders, clean and unclean kind of world. We also need to experience this ongoing conversion of the gospel in our lives. If we will be no outsiders kind of people, if we will be a no outsiders kind of church. There are three things that, that Peter says later on in this chapter that I think show us the key components of what this conversion looks like. The power that can move us outward. And the first three points that I want to put up here in closing is humility. It's the recognition that I am just like you. In verse 26, when Peter comes into Cornelius' house, Cornelius actually falls down and tries to worship or show Peter reverence. And Peter says, actually the text says, Peter lifted him up. And he said, I too am a man. I think that that is just full of significance. That Peter said, I am just like you. I am in in need of the same message that you are in need of. I am in need of what Jesus has done just as you are. And we are on equal footing. Humility. Peter realized, I am just like you. Secondly, as we already mentioned, repentance. Peter realized, what I've done is I've added to the gospel. In verse 28, we read this. He said, It is unlawful to associate or to visit anyone from another nation. But God has shown me I should not call anyone impure or unclean. What Peter says is partially true. There is nothing in the law of the Old Testament that says you can't associate or visit a Gentile. You can't eat the same food that they eat, so they added some safeguards, some extra barriers. If I'm not supposed to eat this food, then I'm not even going to be next to the people who eat that food. If I'm not supposed to eat that food, then I'm not going to get anywhere near a place where that's happening. And Peter realized, 
I've added to the gospel. But now God has shown me I should not call anyone impure or unclean. Lastly, Peter underwent another experience and conversion of grace. He said, Truly I understand that God shows no partiality. To him all the prophets bear witness that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter realized, I am just as far outside of the kingdom in and of myself than anyone else. My ethnicity, the way that I have kept the food laws, all the ways that I've tried to keep things away from me that might contaminate me or make me impure, none of those things has brought me closer to God. None of those things makes me better than anyone else. And he realized that in order for the walls to come down between people, they have to first come down between us and God. And Peter is saying, now I understand the connection. That because the walls have come down between me and God by grace, that I treat other people with grace and welcome. He understood that Jesus, who was the ultimate insider, became the ultimate outsider for us. In Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12, it says, Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. But not only did Jesus leave his eternal fellowship and joy with the Father to enter into the brokenness of human history, and not only did Jesus suffer the wrath of God, the justice of God in our place, but he did that not even in the city of Jerusalem, but as an outsider, as an outcast. He was willing to be an outcast so that no one regardless of ethnicity, race, the issues, the struggles in our lives, would be considered an outsider, but that all would be welcomed, even us. Let's close with a quote from Dennis Johnson, who says this, We who have experienced this grace, we are the ones who must climb the walls, build the bridges, and suffer the stresses of culture shock. People who know Jesus must pay the price to pierce the barriers between peoples. As they do, Jesus spreads his salvation to the ends of the earth. May we be those kinds of people, and may Trinity, may we be that kind of church. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you crossed the greatest barrier of all in order to bring us on the inside. That the ways that we have rejected and resisted you, that the barriers that we put up between us and you, you crossed, and that you came to us. We thank you for that incredible grace. We thank you for that incredible welcome. We thank you that there is nothing that makes us an outsider to you. And I pray that we would be those kinds of people, people of radical welcome, hospitality, and grace 
in our lives. And you would show us. Lord, we resist seeing ways that we are affected by our own prejudice and bias. May you give us the freedom to honestly confess those things and may you turn us around and change us that we might be this embodied question mark type of community here in Orange County and that all would be welcome to experience, to receive, and to trust in the incredible message of welcoming grace in your son Jesus. We pray in his name. Amen.